Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. To delay the second dose of COVID-19 vaccine or not? Some more conditions around AstraZeneca. And when do you think it'll be time to reopen everything up? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. There are now so many vaccines being approved. It's hard to keep track which one it is that Canadians will wait in line for next. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the fun. Uh, we would hear from, uh, love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter, you can communicate there. Also, send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Lots to talk about today in regard to uh, where we are with the COVID-19 uh, discussion as we uh, continue in week number 51. Next week, it will be one year uh, since we started doing the Scott Thompson Show from home Uh the kids were in March break. You might remember at the time when uh, everyone was uh, told to uh, pack up and uh, and close the door, go home and stay there for a while. Uh, odd to believe, fascinating to believe we have uh, been waiting through this for uh, almost a year now. Well, it certainly has been here, uh, COVID-19, in the country for well uh, over a year, but certainly when uh, all the massive lockdowns started and and uh, people started really getting a grip of uh, what COVID-19 was all about. Hard to believe. Uh, first, want to play you a clip. British Columbia has already changed up its immunization plan and has decided it will extend the time between giving first and second doses of COVID-19 vaccine to four months. Dr. Bonnie Henry says the change is based on growing evidence that there is significant protection as much as 90% after even just one dose of Pfizer or Moderna. The Ford government is now looking to follow suit and will ask the feds for updated guidance today, saying a dosing delay would help them reach more at-risk Ontarians and potentially offer the vaccine to the general population much earlier than planned. Current guidelines recommend the second doses of the Pfizer vaccine be administered within 42 days of the first and Moderna 28 days after the first shot sandy salerno global news wow you know it's uh amazing how much we're learning here as we go through this pandemic and uh, unfortunately that's just the way it is or perhaps we should be thankful because we are learning uh, really at the speed of light uh, lots of interesting uh, information coming out today in regard to the astrazeneca uh, vaccination as well as uh, the ongoing debate about the first and uh, second dose before we bring in dr ahmad khalid uh, and i know he's listening i I want to play uh, an excerpt from yesterday's show. This is Derek Rossi. He's a co-founder of Moderna uh, talking about the second dose. And obviously, you know, we wouldn't even be having this discussion if we if there wasn't for a shortage um, of vaccination. It would probably be about hesitancy. Uh, but obviously, because there is uh, supply shortages of this and it's it's constantly taxing the supply chain. Uh, now, provinces are looking to uh, just administer one dose. And as B.C., boy, we thought when uh, Quebec was going to leave up to three months that now BC is talking about four months between uh, shots. Um, It's fascinating how this discussion has evolved. Here is uh, what Derek Rossi had to say. 
even though some are given as two shot uh, uh, vaccines and others now one shot, actually, those that are giving two shot are essentially giving already giving a booster, which is uh, essentially what the second shot is. Um, if you actually look at the data from the first shot for even Pfizer and BioNTech, there's very clear that um, uh, protection arises even from the first shot. It doesn't require the second shot, but that certainly the second shot really, really primes the, uh, the immune system uh, in a good way. The same would be true of those that were given in just one shot. If you were to give that as a, as, as a two-shot regimen, you'd get a, a booster effect and, and you'd probably have a more robust response. It really is just how the clinical trials were designed. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Wow, you almost need a program here to keep up, uh, Ahmad. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on where we are today? We've had this discussion for months now in regard to the second shot, um, and, and many surprised when Quebec was going to wait three months. Now, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about four months. Um, what are your thoughts on all of this now? Because <laughs> it seems to change it, daily. I think you've said it best, Scott, when you said it, we wouldn't be having this discussion if there wasn't an adequate vaccine supplies to maintain the maximum rate of primary vaccination. And the reason why we're having this discussion is because we don't have enough supply. And here is we're trying to get as much immunity built in the population as possible. What we do know from the evidence, and there was a study released today from the medical journal that looked at the effectiveness or the efficacy of the vaccine delaying the doses between, that actually it's still effective. And there are no biological uh, basis for any side effects that might occur because of this long-term waiting between the booster shot and the first shot. So that's good news. Uh, now, I think that, as you pointed out early in the show, this, the, the studies are still emerging. So, you know, it's not like we already have the evidence. We're building the evidence as we're moving along. You're going to hear a lot of things like we're building the ship as we're sailing it or we're building the plane as we're flying it. And this is exactly how to describe this vaccine dosaging schedule. So is there a downside to doing this without that clinical research? Because that's what everyone was talking about months ago. But then again, um, and, and when BC started doing this initially uh, in Quebec, uh, they thought that the supply would be would be more consistent. Is, is there a downside to this, doctor, or is this just something we won't know until we get at the other end? The, currently, the evidence does not indicate any downside. So demonstrating the clinical trials that have happened, partial immunity, and what I mean by that is that somewhat of an immunity to COVID-19 is actually granted after just getting the first vaccine dose. And I think this is what's prompting the government, not just Canada, I mean, across the world are doing this, to delay the scheduling of the first dose to second. But does nobody is saying here, I mean, as far as I know, I haven't read anywhere from our Canadian jurisdiction where anybody's saying we're not getting a second dose, that we're only getting a first dose. What mm -hmm. they are saying here is that we're delaying that duration of when you're getting the first to second. And according to evidence is that immunity does appear to continue to happen up to 42 days. And so, you know, what we know so far about the situation is that given the early clinical data from the trials, that you can safely delay the first to second dose but you still need a second dose. I mean, I, I would find it very hard if anybody to argue against that. So we really don't know how long we can go, how long uh, this will last without that second shot or the booster or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, how would Quebec arrived in third, um, sorry, 90 days, how would uh, BC have, have arrived at four months? 
I mean, that's an excellent question, and I think that precisely is the part, part of the problem, is that the evidence is evolving about the duration. And so, you know, will we one day realize that actually, you know, it can't be 42 days or whatever the duration is, it has to be this X amount, possibly. But the bottom line here is that we have an inadequate vaccine supply, period. We don't have enough vaccines to cover the entire population. And so given the constraints that we're under, what is the best case scenario? Well, the best case scenario, according to evidence right now, is that delaying the second dose to get enough people vaccinated to reduce the number of deaths and the strain on our healthcare system. Now, this will completely change if the scenario comes where we have, uh, you know, aggressive supply of the vaccine. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is approved and we have enough of it. Moderna and Pfizer maintains their schedule. AstraZeneca is able to provide the vaccine in due time. All those elements, all those factors will change this. And maybe one day we will realize that actually we don't need the late anymore. We have enough to vaccinate everybody. That's not the case right now. Are you concerned, doctor, that waiting too long will diminish that first dose? Uh, are you concerned that that first dose could um, fall by the wayside or be ineffective if we wait too long? And, and how will we know? Is that something we can do, we can test as we go? They are being tested in the clinical trials. The data that came out today uh, in, the, uh, in the medical journal has actually indicated that, you know, immunity does not appear to wane after the duration studied, which was up to 42 days is what they studied it for. So, and that, those studies are continuing to happen. So whatever jurisdiction decides to delay the duration of the first and second dose, trust me when I say that the scientists are following that very closely to see, are you still able to provide immunity? I mean, that's what we're trying to figure out. Moderna and Pfizer, when they first started this, or when they were when they uh, initiated the vaccine development and rollout, they didn't study it over a long period of time, and they didn't study it with variation in the dosage schedule. Uh, they're leaving it up to the jurisdiction who decide to prolong the duration between the first and second dose to study that, and that is precisely what's happening. And we're going to hear different evidence depending on the jurisdiction and uh, what duration they decide to go forward with. Will we hear more from the manufacturer on this? Absolutely. I think that as different jurisdictions try to have their own schedules, there's going to be more pressure on Pfizer and Moderna to provide their own clarification based on the original clinical data. Uh, And I'm sure they're actively working on that. And also our government is probably talking to Pfizer and Moderna, you know, cross-checking our data with them, or that is the hope. And I'm sure other governments around the world are doing the same thing. I mean, you know, when Moderna and Pfizer tells you that this is the duration we're suspecting that, or we're suggesting that you follow, and then you decide to go a different route, there should be some kind of follow-up there. Now, will it happen or not? What we heard from Moderna and Pfizer so far is that their stand or their point on this is that we're leaving it up to the government. We are not dictating what governments decide to do. We give recommendations based on our own clinical data, and then it's up to different jurisdictions to decide that duration. What about the comments from, uh, we played the comment from Derek Rossi, co-founder of Moderna, earlier. That seems to lend, uh, uh, it certainly makes you think about this and pause that maybe this is a, a strategy we should be using. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, we have a very inadequate vaccine supply at the, at the moment. And we're trying, I think the government and the country overall is trying to figure out, well, given the shortages we're facing, and we're likely going to continue to face. I mean, this is the other part of the coin that we need to discuss here. It's not like, you know, we're, we're, we're guaranteed those vaccines. I mean, we, we, were, we thought we'll have everything by now. We didn't. And we're learning the hard way that people are not really sticking to their commitments and plan, uh, that, you know, the goals that we have in place are not always realistic. 
the rollouts have issues. We're already hearing of issues around distribution and sorry, the, the rollout within uh, Ontario and Toronto specifically. So what I'm trying to say here, Scott, is that with continuing face of shortage and difficulty in rolling out vaccines, there, that's this tough conversations about delaying the, the doses between one and two needs to happen. However, the positive news is that the, the, the evidence indicates that immunity does not appear to wane for the duration between the first and second dose. So you can biologically and safely extend that duration with no negative impact on the population, but with a positive impact that you're going to get more people vaccinated. Uh, I, I remember hearing uh, over the weekend on on one of the news shows over the weekend that this was a similar discussion they were having in the United States, whether to just keep going with that first dose. Considering where we are now, Ahmad, is this something that Canada should be doing? Is this something that, you know, forget the second dose, just get it all out, and when the rest of it arrives three months from now, then we'll, the, we'll worry about the second dosage? I don't think Canada will ever say, forget about the second dose. I think that they're trying to be very careful in saying delaying the second dose. I think, yeah. you know, I, the evidence is very clear from the manufacturers that you need both doses here. We're talking about, just for our audience, Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca. We're not talking about Johnson & Johnson. Johnson Johnson is going to be a one-dose vaccine, which will change things. However, Johnson & Johnson is still not approved in Canada. It has been approved in the U.S. The U.S. just has a different rollout. I think they're being very a lot more aggressive about it. They have a lot more supply, obviously, being that it's manufactured domestically for them. And Joe Biden administration has actually made it explicitly clear that they are they're focused on American citizens. And the reason why I bring that up is because recently there have been questions to the Biden administration about whether they're willing to give some of the vaccines they have to Mexico, for example. And the answer was very crystal clear from the Biden administration yeah. that it will only remain within uh, the U.S. So they have a little bit of a different approach uh, to how they're doing their rollout. Uh, they're a lot more aggressive than us, but that's because they have the supply. We we don't have that supply, uh, and so we are, we're really looking at how much can we really extend that uh, the, between the first dose and second dose. So, in your opinion, with where we are, should Ontario follow this path? Uh, obviously, that's they're, they're still debating whether uh, to do that at this point, but it looks as if they're certainly seriously considering this. Absolutely, and I think they are actually seriously considering, and I won't be surprised if uh, you know, they do move forward with delaying that because Ontario specifically is facing big challenges with supply and, and rollout in the certain jurisdictions within Ontario. And so we're going to see this demand on the vaccine being exceptionally high in our province, which is going to dictate for the government to really be thinking about delaying that first and second dose. Uh, in Ontario, where we see hotspots like uh, Toronto and Peel and such, obviously this is being rolled out. Um, you know, those who are most vulnerable first uh, in the in the homes and such, then seniors, frontline workers, uh, EMS, and 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 such. Uh, when you get to places like hotspots, should it just be a mass vaccination for everybody? Well, that's the hope and that's the goal. And that's why I think a lot of us are urging the government to really think about, you know, uh, thinking about how to make sure that everybody who wants the vaccine within those hotspots is able to actually access them. There are going to be some accessibility issues, you know, depending on where you live in the province and those hotspots, you might not be able to have access to the vaccine. So what happens then? Uh, those are the questions that are being asked right now. And I think the government is actively looking at ways to figure them out. Will family doctors be able to provide them? Are there other models of us being able to distribute them if it becomes an issue that not everybody's able to actually access the vaccination distribution center? 
All right, let's talk about AstraZeneca. Um, obviously, Health Canada has approved it for all those over the age of, of 18 who, who obviously wouldn't have some sort of reaction to it. Now we're hearing research that uh, uh, that is being said that it, it wasn't very thorough in the 65-plus uh, age group, therefore not necessarily recommending it for that age group, which is odd considering it's you know 70 plus who suffer the most from this. Uh, your thoughts on the 65 plus with the AstraZeneca? Yeah, and so this was very interesting because the Immunization Task Force has actually come forward and said that they they suggest that the vaccine AstraZeneca is not given to people over the age of 65. That's that's probably because the the evidence on AstraZeneca efficacy is that it's not uh, you know it's not like Pfizer and Moderna. So my suspicion, and this is not confirmed, is that it's possibly that, you know, we're going to look at a scenario where AstraZeneca will be reserved for people under the age of 65, and Pfizer and Moderna vaccine is given priority to people over the age of 65, which would make sense given the evidence that is presented on the efficacy of those different vaccines. Uh, Pfizer and Moderna is an mRNA-based vaccine, and hence why it has new technology that it's been able to develop for for this vaccine, some argue that it's not even a vaccine, it's, it's sort of a drug because of the new technology involved in it. But the point there is that its efficacy is very high uh, across all age groups. However, AstraZeneca's evidence is that it's about 60%. Uh, and so that's been shown to people under the age of 60. So you don't want to be giving that to somebody who's more vulnerable, basically. You don't want to you know, expose them to a higher risk. And you want to give them the best vaccine to, to have the least risk for them in getting COVID-19 or developing severe symptoms. Would all mRNA vaccines have to be refrigerated at extreme temperatures? Uh, that's a really good question that I think we were trying to figure out clarification on. It doesn't seem to, I mean, they seem to be also innovating it as they're going along. I mean, you know, we're going to hear new vaccines that are using the mRNA methodology or technique that probably requires different refrigeration uh, methods. And that's just by nature of evolving the technique itself. I mean, you know, we're investing, well, companies and governments have invested billions of dollars into this new technology. And we're actually hearing, uh, you know, some really remarkable reports that we're able now to use this mRNA vaccine technique to, you know, cure malaria and, and to figure out possibly mm. a hope for HIV and AIDS. And so, you know, all of a sudden we're hearing things that we thought will never happen in our lifespan. And that's because there's been such a big investment in it. So, yes, I mean, there is a potential that the refrigeration period will change dramatically as new innovation happens in this. And what's the efficacy of the AstraZeneca? Well, as far last time I checked, it was around 60%. But, I mean, yeah. I, there is a precise number for efficacy. I think it was about 65%. Right. And what about Johnson & Johnson? How will this change uh, the landscape? Obviously, a one dose. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a big thing with, with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, is that it's going to be a one dose, which is going to be very good for, you know, remote areas for us. And, and that's going to be exceptionally effective uh, for, you know, being able to access, uh, to provide access to individuals who have a hard time accessing it. We're going to maybe be able to, you know, think about mobile clinics, deliver them. And I just want to correct to give the correct percentage for AstraZeneca. It's actually sixty-two percent. So I wasn't that far right. off. It's sixty-two percent for uh, AstraZeneca, and I think Pfizer's around ninety-four, ninety-five, and and Moderna is also around that range. So it's quite a big difference. And, and what was Johnson and Johnson again? Just to clarify, Johnson and Johnson, Johnson. I mean, we have not approved it in um, uh, in Canada yet, so that has not been very, very clear about right. their efficacy yet. So two percent. Um, sorry, Scott. 
So obviously we've seen uh, where Pfizer and Moderna fit into the puzzle. Uh, AstraZeneca, if it becomes more a younger uh, vaccine, for for lack of a better phrase, where do you see uh, J&Js fitting into all of this? Uh, I mean, I want to make this relevant to us Canadians. How does that impact us? Well, what we know so far is that even if Johnson & Johnson does get approved in Canada, which most likely will be given that the U.S. has given its approval, we're not looking to shipments until June. And so the big question mark here for us, Scott, is if the prime minister continues to promise that everybody who wishes to get a vaccine by end of December will get it, there's a really a big question is, is that really realistic? Like, is that going to happen if Johnson & Johnson is going to come here by June? I think the hope here is that uh, with AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Pfizer, we will fill the gap. And by that, I mean is that we will be able to get the majority of Canadians vaccinated. Where Johnson & Johnson might play a role, I think, is in, in, in getting the extra layer of extra bulk supply of the vaccine if we need it. Um, and so I'm not sure that Johnson & Johnson is going to be a much big difference for us Canadians. Um, I think it's playing a difference in the U.S. because they're rolling it out as we speak. They're being able, I think in one day yesterday, they were able to get out 2 million doses of it. So that's very different landscape than us. Should we be concerned over the efficacy of one to the other? Um, you know, uh, Canadians are seeing this research. If they're going to choose, obviously, they're going to take the one that's more effective. Is that the concern here? Uh, how do you address this all? How do you address Canadians when it comes to this sort of thing and, and, and the various vaccines that are out there? Yeah, I mean, this has been a very hot topic debate all over social media and within networks of people talking within themselves about which vaccine to take. Bottom line is that, first of all, I don't think we're going to have a choice. Uh, and the most important thing to tell people is that all of those vaccines are safe. Whether AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Pfizer, the evidence has indicated that they are safe. Now, in terms of efficacy rates, I mean, this is a very scientific term uh, that doesn't really should impact your own decision as an individual whether you should take the vaccine or not. What you should care about is, A, do I have access to the vaccine primarily? Two, is it safe? And the answer to both is, the first one is you should have access to the vaccine as time prolongs and your time period comes for you to get it. And B, and most importantly, it is safe. All three vaccines have not shown any side effects, severe side effects that have led to hospitalizations or deaths because of the vaccine. None of the three vaccines so far, there's been no evidence to show that the severity of symptoms have gotten worse if they got COVID-19. So that tells everybody who's listening out there that all three vaccines are safe. And when the, choice, when the time comes for you to get one of them, there shouldn't be an issue of which one you should get. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert, talking about uh, vaccines and where we are as of today, uh, March 2nd. Uh, doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. I want to play you a clip, and this one is uh, in regard to the vaccination and AstraZeneca specifically, as there seems to be varying uh, opinion on if its efficacy and when it should be used and should be used and such. Here is Brianna Carnegie from Global News. Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization is not currently recommending using the newly approved AstraZeneca vaccine on people aged 65 or older. Its reasoning, it's due to limited information on the 
the efficacy of this vaccine in this age group at this time. We do know, however, that for people aged 18 to 64 years old, the shots demonstrate an average efficacy of approximately 62% and should be delivered in two doses four to 12 weeks apart. Canada has ordered 24 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, uh, let's talk about the national scope of uh, vaccination, how it's changing and, and, and such, and, and where we are as, again, we discover more and more information. Let's bring in Mark uh, Andre Gagnon, Associate Professor at Carleton University, focusing on social health and pharmaceutical policy, and is with us now. Mark, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine, thank you. I know, obviously, uh, your specialties in the procurement and, and these agreements and such, but just your thoughts on some of the, I guess, uh, differing information we're getting from AstraZeneca. What, what are we supposed to uh, uh, collect from this? What are we supposed to uh, understand? Well, it, it's not very surprising uh, in the sense that uh, from the beginning, so uh, basically we have three vaccines right now that are being authorized in Canada, so uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. And uh, so both Pfizer and Moderna, these are mRNA vaccine, and basically they, they were known to be very uh, efficient, uh, effective with the uh, senior population. Uh, versus AstraZeneca is a different technology, and we knew that uh, with seniors it wasn't as good, let's say, in terms of uh, the immunological response. Uh, and the thing is, with the, 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 the arrival of the different variants, uh, especially the one I think in South Africa, uh, there was important issues with this AstraZeneca vaccines uh, for seniors. So uh, I, I'm not surprised to see that Health Canada is, uh, is saying we're authorizing uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, but uh, uh, let's try to avoid it for seniors, basically. Is that, um, again, it doesn't seem to be a safety issue. It just seems to be uh, that it wasn't accurately tested on that age group or that the efficacy of that age group is not as effective. Well, in terms of the testing, it's just now in terms of data with the new variants, it becomes very important to uh, have a, a bit more details of uh, the efficacy of the vaccine, not only uh, about the vaccine itself on COVID-19, but on the different variants of the vaccine. But in most countries until now, this uh, AstraZeneca vaccine is being less used on senior people. So it, it, we end up with way less data on this specific vaccine. So as long as we don't have more data, basically we can say that, uh, well, to play it safe, let's use this vaccine for people under 65. Considering uh, that this uh, disease uh, greatly affects the older generation more than anyone, are you surprised that more testing wasn't done in that cohort? Um, again, it's just AstraZeneca did the, the, the clinical trials with the original COVID-19 right. virus. Uh, uh, yeah. As soon as we take into consideration the variants, uh, it's just you cannot necessarily do that in, a, in what we call a phase three clinical trials. So basically doing this in a controlled environment with patients, which was done uh, for the initial authorization of the vaccine based on the initial virus. Um, so it's just we, we don't have this data. And the thing is, uh, right now, in 
in ethical terms, would it be at this moment a good idea to run these huge clinical trials with seniors giving them the vaccine when we know already that this vaccine is maybe not the best for them? So in terms of ethical issues, uh, this is an important question we need to ask as well. So it's more the variants that are um, the variants that that have come out after this initial virus that are of concern with the AstraZeneca. Uh, exactly. So, so it's just we know that the AstraZeneca vaccine has a bit of a reduced efficacy as compared to the, uh, as compared to the one by Pfizer, Moderna, or the the, the one by Johnson and Johnson. Um, but but the thing is, uh, when it came to variants, uh, it seemed especially the I think the South African variants was a, a bit more problematic with the, the AstraZeneca vaccine. All right. The big discussion uh, today, Mark, is in regard to that second dose. And that has been a a debate ever since uh, the vaccines uh, arrived. We remember Quebec decided they weren't going to hold any back uh, for the second dose at all, just administer as much as they could. Uh, B.C. started the same thing and then kind of, you know, everybody kind of backtracked when all of a sudden there was a shortage and we, we didn't receive any supply for a couple of weeks. That obviously changed that plan. But now uh, that it appears that we can see uh, the eventual arrival of, of more and more vaccine, that that's not the issue. So what are your thoughts on that, uh, uh, you know, delaying the second dose? Uh, initially, Quebec was 90, uh, 90 days, and people thought, oh, my goodness, three months, that's something. And then BC is talking about delaying theirs four months. Uh, again, uh, we're, we're looking at AstraZeneca and Health Canada, uh, concerned about those over 65 plus due to lack of research and such. What about in this situation? Well, it's a bit difficult for me to jump into the debate. Uh, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, right. uh, so this is not the, the type of analysis I can do. But uh, let's just say just the, the problem at the basis, the, the, the problem is that uh, uh, we're receiving uh, vaccines very slowly. So how can we make the most of it? And in epidemiology, when it comes to other vaccines, for example, what we know is that for some of these vaccines, uh, uh, waiting longer for the second dose, in fact, could make the vaccine more efficient. Then the question was, well, should we be doing the same thing here? It's just... Uh, we don't have the data in terms of will we will it be more efficient if we wait more? So maybe it will be way less efficient. We don't have the data, so there is uncertainty. But at the same time, we know that if we're not taking our chance, basically we might end up uh, vaccinating less people, and the outcome might be worse if we do that. So in terms of putting risks. Uh, and benefits in the balance. So this is the job of epidemiologists to decide which way they want to organize this uh, the, the vaccination campaign. Uh, but uh, the basis of the problem is that we're receiving these vaccines very slowly. Uh, obviously, if you, as you just mentioned, Mark, if we were not having a supply issue, if the, if the supply chain wasn't so slow, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. It would probably be more of a hesitancy rather than who gets it next or how we administer these. So this is obviously due to a shortage. How did we do as a country when it comes to procurement? Uh, it seems, you know, the prime minister talked about how much there was. There was a large portfolio, um, but other places like the U.K. and the U.S. Uh, probably 
probably the UK is a better example, uh, uh, spent more time or, or as much time on procurement as well as production. What are your thoughts on, on how this all came down? Um, let's just say, uh, for me, it's kind of difficult to, to blame the Canadian government in this whole situation. Basically, uh, we started in a very flawed position from the start. It's just we, we did, uh, from the start, do some important investment in terms of uh, research and development, but it was a partnership with a Chinese company and diplomatic issues with, the, with China basically ended up uh, uh, making this partnership a failure. But uh, And from there, basically, it's just, Canada, uh, we ended up with having the Trump administration in the South, and the Trump administration made it clear, it's just, we will not export any vaccine before all Americans are vaccinated. So in that situation, it's just not... That being said, Mark, uh, that being said, Mark, sorry to interrupt, but Biden just said the same thing last night, and, and his press secretary reiterated that neither Mexico or Canada or anybody will get any vaccination out of out of the United States until they're inoculated. No, no, absolutely. The, 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 the same problem remains. And it would have been very difficult for the Biden administration to say, well, no, we will start exporting uh, under the circumstances. Basically, it's normal for them to stick uh, to, to this kind of crazy position that it's all about us before anybody else. Um, so in that situation, Canada ended up having to, okay, start negotiating with drug companies in order to get the vaccines, but without having any of these vaccines being manufactured in the United States. So that's the reason we end up with the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna being manufactured in, in Belgium and Switzerland, I think. Um, and basically, with these confidential agreements, uh, uh, we try to diversify the sources of uh, um, of the manufacturing. So I think, uh, you know, we, we use the, 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 the buying platform that is called COVAX, that is mostly there to help uh, developing countries, but the developed countries are invited to, uh, to participate in order to help the platform. Uh, so we did buy uh, uh, some AstraZeneca vaccines there, but making sure that it would be produced, I think, in South Korea, just to make sure that we're div- diversifying the, the sources of the manufacturing. Um, in that situation, when Pfizer and Moderna announced that they will be slowing down production in their um, European manufacturing facilities, there was very little we could do. In fact, Canada was in a bit of a state of panic when uh, there was this uh, commercial feud between Europe and the UK. So basically, uh, Europe was threatening to block the export of the AstraZeneca vaccine to the UK. But because of international trade rules, you cannot do that only against one country. You need to do, the, to do that against all countries. So uh, if Europe was kind of closing down the export of all COVID-19 vaccines to all countries, then Canada would have ended up in a very, very bad situation. we got to stop there. We're completely out of time. Marc-Andre Gagnon with his associate professor at Carleton University focusing on social health and pharmaceutical policy. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My, My pleasure. Take care. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, week number 51. Next week is 52. 52 weeks. It's a year celebration. Celebration? Is that a good choice of word? Exactly. What do we do? You know, I was thinking maybe we'll run some clips of stuff we did a year ago, but who the hell wants to hear that? Who, who wants to go backwards? Uh, you know, I might do this. And you tell me what you think. I might start week 52 uh, by bumping everything COVID from the beginning of the show. My wife said, I'm not sure you're going to be able to do that. I said, yeah, you know what? I want to put all the COVID stuff at the back end of the show. Any Everything else that's non-COVID towards the front of the show, it's a new year, it's whatever, and we're just sort of mopping up COVID. Do you think that would fly? Or do you think, like, again, I was going to, you know, because I was off yesterday, I was sick. I think, you know what, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do that. And then, you know, all this the stuff about AstraZeneca and now how, you know, we're not going to hold back for the second dose. I can't do that. I got to lead with this crap. Uh, But we'll try. Do you think we can do that, Will? Do you think we'll be able to pull off never doing COVID-19 at the beginning of the show again? Ah. I'm not sure about think. never, but I think you might. <laughs> some people would be relieved if we did that, I think. It's a good little vacation. Yeah, yeah there's the sad reality right there. Uh, lots of fascinating polling being done by uh, various uh, polling companies in Canada and such in regard to our reaction to this global pandemic, um, the future, the past. Uh, it's been fascinating. It's been a fascinating social experiment. Um, to, to watch the world in the grips of a global pandemic, because this is something that is virtually affecting everyone. And as we get towards the tail end of all of this, um, many are, are moving the discussion towards what happens next and when do we switch the we flip the switch back on when do we open the barn doors and let everybody out when are people going to feel comfortable traveling again or doing the things that they once uh, did and there's a fascinating poll coming out of leger 31 percent of canadians are comfortable with economic business restrictions ending when all canadians who want the vaccine have received uh, their required doses. Let's bring in Dave Schultz, Executive VP of Leger, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. I hope you're doing, you're doing well as well, and I'm glad you're uh, leading off with this discussion, or else I'd be on hold a long time. So. <laughs> you know, it, it must be fascinating to be in your business and watch how uh, the, the changes have happened over the past year in our attitudes towards this uh, pandemic. You know, changes are not changes. We're still at around 50 to 60% of uh, Canadians feeling uh, afraid that they may still get the, the virus. So some of it's remained the same. Some of it now we're moving to discussing opening up, and uh, that's becoming a, a fascinating look at how comfortable we are going to be. Is this going to be the roaring 20s where we rush out and embrace everything? Or is this going to be still a, a slow process? And according to this recent poll, it looks like it's going to be a little slower process. You know, it's interesting uh, what you you brought up, because uh, I remember in the second wave, people really started feeling threatened by this. And you really saw the numbers go up about people being very, very concerned about uh, contracting this virus. Now that we're seeing more and more vaccines, maybe they're not rolling in as quickly as we like them to be, but certainly on the on the horizon. Do we still feel that way? Are we still uh, as afraid of this virus as we were? 
we're still seeing those similar results. We didn't ask that this week, but two weeks ago yeah. we saw similar results. Uh, around that 55, 60%, I'm worried I'm going to contract the virus, which is where it was last April. Uh, and, and, but a part of that is we haven't seen the vaccine move into the general population in a big way yet. And yeah. I think when we start having seeing more and more people that we know uh, get the vaccine, I think we'll see that, that start to shift. All right, let's uh, go over the first uh, question here. Uh, as vaccinations increase in Canada, some people have suggested the economic lockdowns, restrictions, curfew should end. At what point in the general population vaccination process would you feel comfortable ending economic business restrictions, including curfews, uh, closures, occupancy limits, etc.? I-, I think I, my first reaction is how close all of these numbers are. There doesn't seem to be one going way out in front, although obviously the winner is a bit out in front. But let's start with all Canadians over that when all the uh, Canadians over 65 have been uh, vaccinated and received their both doses 12 percent uh surprised at any of these numbers I'm sorry say that again are, are you surprised at these numbers well, and how varied we are I it's the it's the varied part that's interesting so there isn't as you said there isn't a I mean, the single consensus is people want to wait till everyone's received their doses. Yeah. But everyone's got their own personal view on when this is going to happen. So everyone over the age of 65, um, and even when you look at age, um, people over 55, it's only 10% of that population. So it's right on the average uh, or close to the average of that 12%. The only group that significantly agrees with this more is uh, younger people. 18 to 34. So as soon as everyone over the age of 65 is dosed, let's open up. Mm. This is what we're hearing from that population. So there is some adjustments here. If you start to look behind um, some of these numbers, everyone who's younger is leading towards opening sooner. Mm. Everyone who is over 55 is leaning towards let's wait till more people have the vaccine. Uh, And then provincially, uh, Alberta and Quebec are leaning towards opening earlier than the rest of the country wants to as well. So fascinating that still 31%, that's the and that's the majority here, uh, uh, want to wait until everyone who has wanted a vaccine have received their required doses. So that would be two doses. So what that would indicate is Canadians don't want to see a lot of change until we're finished with the vaccination process. And when you ask Canadians, when do you think you're going to be getting both your doses or everything's going to be done? They're looking at August. So the, the numbers behind this is they're saying, let's wait, uh, but it's going to be August before we expect this to happen. And I found it fascinating that under the 31% who, who want to wait till everybody's received their second doses, there's even a, a group that say at 18% that we should wait till six months after they have been vaccinated to make sure that it's gone. Which gets back to that overall fear of contracting it. And it also gets to the public health messages, which is even though you're vaccinated, you still need to isolate, you still need to wear a mask, you still need to do all these things. So there's that concern of, will it really be gone, even though we're vaccinated? That's, that's the, within that 18%, that's what we're starting to pick up there. So uh, do you think this will change as time goes by, as we get through the summer, or do you think these are going to stay pretty consistent? I think these will start to change when more people are aware of uh, friends and family and colleagues starting to get the vaccine. Uh, and when we start to come out of the 
lockdowns a little bit more and uh, the government starts to um, start to starts to relax some of this. Do you think these numbers would change, uh, Dave, if we had a more consistent supply? Do you think these are hinge th- these results are hinging on the fact that there's a shortage of vaccine in Canada? Well, I think we've had a start and stop process to this. We've gotten excited that vaccines are coming, and then we've we've had to hold off and, and wait back again. Um, I was listening to your last uh, the last hour a bit in terms of your uh, your conversation. We still, as Canadians are confident that our provincial government, 54% of us are confident that our provincial government is going to distribute it right when they actually get the vaccine coming in. Um, And 56% are still confident that the federal government will be able to get us access uh, when we want it. So we're still, you know, it's not uh, 80 or 90%, it's only 56%, but we're still leaning towards thinking the government is going to get this right eventually. As opposed to, we're all going to be vaccinated by March. Now it's, we're all going to be vaccinated by August. And we still think that's going to happen. Uh, if things start to push off, maybe we'll see more concerns. Uh, but I, and, and I think as we see more, vac- more vaccines available and we start to hear about people outside of uh, congregated living or long-term care homes and, and healthcare workers, once we start to hear of others getting vaccinated, I think these numbers, this 31% could grow and people would be more open to opening earlier. Um, and, and this, uh, when do you think you will receive your first dose of COVID-19 vaccine? And your poll says uh, August or thereafter. So that, sh- that sort of shows the confidence they have in government because that's what the federal government has said. Uh, by September, you will be, uh, we'll, we'll have everyone who wants a vaccination to be vaccinated. So obviously, that, that's what the public's buying into at 43%. Exactly, exactly. And we also asked people who had been recently vaccinated um, what they felt. And 73% of them are saying everyone should get vaccinated. 62% are saying, I feel a great weight has been lifted. They identify with that. So if that's what we're hearing from the people that have just started to get the vaccine, I think as more get it, that weight will be lifted. And I think these numbers of when do we open will become stronger. We're certainly hearing today, uh, and, and obviously, you know, I'm not sure you've done any polling on this, but obviously we're hearing mixed reviews from AstraZeneca, whether it's, you know, it should be used in people over 65 or not. Uh, we, we're also hearing um, many talk about the second dose. Uh, there's been great debate ever since the, vaccine, uh, the vaccines have been released that, you know, uh, once the shortage came, uh, you know, do we, do we continue on with administering the first dose? hold for the second now we're starting to hear research uh that uh it's better just to unload the first vaccine that provides uh more coverage and 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 wait even uh three months or four months as in bc's case uh for for the second dose how do you think that's going to reflect in the polls in the weeks to come well i think especially when you're talking about vaccine hesitancy in terms of people are embracing the idea of getting a vaccine we've never been in this situation where uh, as science is discovering new things about the vaccines and about the virus, we're having to change or adjust our thinking midstream. And all those changes and all those adjustments just give people more things to worry about as yeah. to where they're get, why, why they should or why they shouldn't get it. So it's going to end up becoming a case of 
uh, confidence because I know someone who has gotten it and they're okay, and my fear of what we don't know um, that will be showing up in the polls for the next little while. It's interesting, too, of the discussions that we're having because of where we are with the vaccination. For example, we're, you know, uh, having lots of discussion about who should get it, uh, lots of discussion about whether we should withhold the second dose, whereas these would be discussions we would not be having if there was uh, lots of supply on hand uh, for the country. Um, would So we don't seem to be having very many discussions about hesitancy at this point. Is that because we still don't have a supply? If we had a very adequate supply, then the, then the discussion would move to hesitancy. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right on that. Two weeks ago, we asked uh, when a vaccine is available and it's free, do you intend to get vaccinated? And 73% of Canadians said yes two weeks ago. Uh, now, we, in the last two weeks, AstraZeneca has been approved. Uh, we're starting to hear talks about Johnson & Johnson showing up as an additional vaccine. Um, it's still at 73%. So we really haven't wavered uh, to that point. So, so you're right, people aren't necessarily looking at this in a great way, but it will become more of a topic as we go further into the spring. Um, do you, right now, Canadians are comparing to where they are in the rest of the world. You know, uh, you know, we've heard lots of, of what number we are in, in the world as far as per capita vaccinations, uh, and such. As we increase the amount of people who are vaccinated, is that going to mean less and less to people? I, I think, I think it will. I think once we get a little closer on track, um, the, the general sense is, uh, as you said, people are anticipating that we're still going to get it by August. So if that's our anticipation, we're not going to be upset if we don't have it by April, May, July. Right. Um, it's it's a question of are we showing that we're on track for that general rollout by August? Then, then, and I think people will be comparing our results to those numbers as opposed to other countries as we go along. There's certainly been plenty of talk uh, in political circles about an election and and when the timing is right, uh, the trigger will be pulled. Any uh, response or any thoughts, any feedback on where an election fits into all of this? Is, will there be a, will there be a sweet spot in here where, where there's an appropriate time to call an election? You know, that's really tough right now because calling an election also means a whole bunch of issues in terms of how do we vote and how do we congregate to vote and, and how do how do you as a political party get out and support the vote I mean, door to door would not be an option during this. Um, and we still see that the Liberal Party, uh, as of this week, is at uh, 35% of decided voters uh, versus 28% for the Conservative Party. Those numbers are down 1% each from the week before. So there hasn't, and that there really hasn't been much of a change over the last year. So does Justin Trudeau call an election when he has the chance, according to the polling numbers, to win a minority again? Or do the Conservatives or NDP decide to do something when everything's leading towards a minority again? It's going to be hard to tell. Uh, I can't let you go without touching on some of the results that you have for American politics, including a stat that says 48% of Americans approve of the job that Joe Biden is doing as president of the U.S., 38% disapprove. 
However, the uh, still the surprising 66% of Americans who voted for Trump in the 2020 presidential election say they are more loyal to Trump, while 34% of them say they're more loyal to the Republican Party. Surprised to still see that large support for uh, the ex-president, and what does that do for the Republican Party? We, ha- we have seen that support grow over the last four years, um, and it's, it's Republicans and uh, all ex-Republicans who have come back to the party that are supporting Trump in this, in this capacity. And I think that's why we've seen the Republican Party so hesitant to start moving away from Trump, because he still does have this very significant uh, base uh, of voters or followers or however you want to put it. If he still has that power, does that mean more divisiveness for his party? I, I don't have an I don't have an answer to that, uh, but uh, the party seems to be following along a little bit of the party lines. I think we see a lot more divisiveness for the United States because it's not a case. Uh, it's Joe Biden is wrong if you're a Trump supporter, no matter what he does. Yeah, uh, and I think we're good, we could see four years of a continued to be divided country, even though uh, Biden and Harris got up and talked about unity and bringing the country together and uh, he's working for everyone, we still see people not necessarily wanting a Democratic president to be working for them. Dave Schultz has been with us, Executive Vice President of Leger. Uh, fascinating numbers coming out of Canada and, of course, always the United States. And the majority, well, 31% of us comfortable with getting everything back to normal when everyone who wants a vaccine has received their required doses. Fascinating stuff. Dave, again, thanks for all of this. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. All right. Interesting. As we all uh, watch the world get vaccinated, uh, where Canada is in this line and uh, what countries are doing that vaccinating and where the vaccination is actually coming from. We hear lots of Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca. Uh, but it looks that uh, most of the world will not be vaccinated with those vaccinations, but with others. From China, the plane laden with vaccines had just rolled up to a stop at San Diego's airport late January. Uh, Chile's president was beaming uh, and said today, he said, uh, is a day of joy, emotion and hope. The source of that hope, China, a country that Chile and dozens of other nations up to 45 at last count uh, are depending on to help rescue them from the COVID-19 global pandemic. To talk more about all of this, Gordon Holden is with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gord, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. So is this good or bad that China is uh, on a path to, to try to vaccinate the rest of the world? Well, I think on balance it's good. I have a couple quibbles, though. And the reason I think it's good is that there simply isn't enough vaccine. I mean, not enough vaccine in Canada, not enough vaccine in the world. Chinese, along with Indian and Russians, Indians and Russia are capable of pumping out what will be potentially billions of vaccines in a timely manner. That is, should be good news for the rest of us, because if the disease runs unchecked, creating new variants every few days in other parts of the world, that ultimately is a threat to us as well. But I have a few quibbles, and one of them is that the Chinese haven't been as forthcoming 
as the vaccine distributors that we in Canada are relying on in releasing their data. So there's a question mark there. But I would say on balance, it's a good thing, although it bothers me a bit to see that the West is not fulfilling the role of being able to help uh, much of the rest of the world with the COVID-19. Is this something China is doing be just out of the goodness of its own heart because that's where this virus originated and they feel it's their responsibility, or are these countries going to owe China something? Well, it's a combination of things. I, my view is that China runs a very pragmatic foreign policy, which is based on their own interests. Now, those interests could include the self-interest of having a safer world. China is locked down. They have very little COVID. They're in a really good position, although ironically, it means that there's little incentive for Chinese to get vaccinated right now. Something like less than half are signing up. Um, but um, they, some of it's being given away. Some of it's being sold, probably to the sort of middle-income countries, and some is being uh, debt-financed. So, yes, there'll be both potentially a financial obligation uh, that has to be paid, and there could be a moral obligation as well um, in the sense of, uh, look, China, you helped us out when we were in a difficult circumstance. The West had cornered most supply of vaccine, and you provided us with a more basic but appears to be still functioning vaccine. Why is the vaccine not mandatory in China, considering the lockdowns are? It's very odd, isn't it? Um, Certain parts of the Chinese society have made it mandatory. If you're the taxi drivers in Beijing, for example, must be mandated. And certain companies, uh, well, I saw... Association of, uh, of Bars in Beijing had said uh, either you get vaccinated or, you, or face weekly testing. The, the thing there is, it's partly they're a victim of their own success. Because they've cracked down so hard and, and drastically limited the number of cases. I mean, they're looking at, in, assuming the numbers are accurate, they're looking at numbers in, in some, uh, some in many days of less than 50. Um, people sort of say, why would I bother? I'm not sure I like vaccines. I don't trust them. If there was panic and people were dropping on the streets, as there was at the very beginning in Wuhan, uh, there might be more uptick. Now, I think the government of China will get around to enforcing uh, vaccinations. They're pretty good at that sort of thing. But that does mean in the meantime, they've got a lot of flex in exporting what will likely to be hundreds of millions, if not a billion vaccine vaccinations. So they would rather export it than uh, supply it to its, to their own citizens? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I am saying that. I think it's partly, though, it's, not, it's really a strange thing. It's as if uh, COVID had disappeared largely in Beijing, in China. They're not allowing anybody in. Their own uh, nationals that return have to go through a testing regime and it utterly... But, what, but wouldn't vaccination, Golden uh, Gordon, free, uh, free all that up? I mean, if everybody's vaccinated, they don't have to stay locked down. They can they can open more. So I, I'm surprised China's sense. not convincing more to get it. Yeah, that would make sense. But what they've done is they've opened up uh, because they've got their borders sealed and because they've contained COVID, their society is opened up. I speak to people regularly in Beijing at our embassy and elsewhere going out for meals and, and uh, basically living normal lives now. Um, in China. So I, I think they will get around to enforcement. Um, but in the meantime, the numbers of, of vaccinated are really low. I mean, uh, low like ours, but, but much below those of Europe or United States.
Doesn't that sound, though, Gordon, that they're not very confident in their vaccine? Because, again, this is a country that they tell their citizens what to do and they do it, whether it's stay at home, load an app or get a vaccine. Is this vaccine effective? Is it safe? Well, that's the wish. I wish we were more forthcoming in releasing the data. They they don't lack for first-rate um, neurology experts. I mean, many have been trained in the West. Uh, they have exchanged papers, etc. They've certainly got a lot of quality. And, and the, when I was in Beijing during SARS in 2003, and there they had no Center for Disease Control equivalent of our public health agency. They started one up. They started building hospitals and research centers right, left, and center, and the economy is almost 10 times as large as it was then. They've got a lot of scientific capacity. It's a fairly traditional vaccine. I am not a doctor, but it uh, appears to be effective. We haven't been getting negative reports from places where it's already been administered, and there have been tens of thousands, if not a couple hundred thousands of of vaccines distributed already. So, um, um, But, uh, yes, I'd like to see more data. They ought to be more open, but their instincts are not to be open, unfortunately. Um, whatever happened to the CanSino vaccine, which Canada was partnering with China on, and then obviously the Chinese Communist Party pulled the plug on that. Uh, China took the information and, and went home. It, has the CanSino vaccine uh, surfaced without the aid of Canada? Yeah, well, here's that's one of the saddest chapters of Canada-China, is that uh, um, that should have been, might have been, a really good collaboration with Dalhousie University, providing some of the intellectual talent, China providing some of it, and then the manufacturer done in China. Uh, you're right. Uh, basically, the, the authorities basically banned the re-export. I don't think it was a company. I think it was, as you were suggesting, the Chinese leaders uh, banned the export of um, the key data and uh, samples needed, Dalhousie needed to produce this. Uh, yes, that vaccine, I think, was the, the third and fourth vaccines have been approved in China this week. And that was one of them. So yes, it will be one of the vaccines that will be distributed around the world. Um, Canada having contributed, as I understand it, to its intellectual property, which which never benefited us in any way. Where do you see this discussion going? Uh, obviously, um, y- you know, the U.S. has taken a policy. We're not sending any out until uh, all of our citizens are vaccinated, which, you know, is, is certainly something that, that that other countries are, are using. Yet we have China who's, you know, vaccinating all of these other countries and even half their population isn't vaccinated. Well, I think that this the vaccine diplomacy is a is a tricky subject. I and mean, I would hope that I totally understand and support. We vaccinated our own with the too small quantity of vaccines we have already. That just makes common sense. Canadians first. But I would hope that the number of vaccine, vaccines we're going to receive far exceeds our population by a multiple. And I would hope that we would sell those to um, those who can afford it and give it to those who don't. Because, again, if we can contain this global pandemic, which doesn't respect borders, uh, it's in our net interest to do so. But I can't quibble with looking after us first and our own vulnerable people. That, to me, you know, our, our government's responsibility is to Canadians first. But once we're past that, just out of general humanity, I think we ought to be generous and helpful to other countries. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, talking about vaccine diplomacy. Gordon, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott.
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.